The scene opens with dimming lights over a crowded ballroom. The rumble of conversation and laughter starts to die away. A bright spotlight slices through the dark, smoky room and hits the velvet curtains as the music starts. On a platform above the band, Cab Calloway's lithe form emerges. He pushes through the heavy fabric effortlessly with one arm, extending one long leg into the light after the other. The crowd bursts into a welcoming applause. Calloway wears an iconic yellow suit. The two-button jacket has long flowing tails and heavily padded shoulders. Its full chest is accentuated with a dapper little boutonniere. Calloway's pants are wide-legged, becoming broadest at the knee, tapering into neat cuffs at his ankles. He gives his knees a little shake in time with the music. A long chain hangs from his waist, gleaming under the bright stage lights. He bends down, lifting his pant leg slightly, to reveal an elegant dress sock and pale shoe that matches his suit. With a hyperbolic shrug, he saunters down a small flight of stairs to his band. He accessorizes with a huge smile, massive bow tie, and wide-brimmed hat. Descending the stairs with a flourish, he twirls and gives the crowd a little sachet, the chain and billowing fabric dancing right along with him. With his back still to the crowd, he raises his left arm towards one section of the brass. The blast of a trumpet, played by jazz legend Benny Carter, replies. Calloway's clothing makes his movements seem even larger, playing to the back of the house, in a sense. And it's working. By now, the crowd is swaying and clapping along. He turns to face them while prancing in a large circle, giving everyone in the room a full 360-degree view of his entire ensemble. He then shimmies backwards to the awaiting microphone, but he doesn't sing. As he positions himself behind the mic for a second, Calloway removes his hat and drops it lightly on a ledge behind him. He then struts back out to the front of the stage, dramatically dusting off his outstretched arms, the contrasting narrowness of his sleeves against the bulk of the rest of his outfit. His knees drop into a series of Charleston-like flutters, and the chain and fabric of his pants bounce right along with him. Hello and welcome to History Unhemmed, a podcast that debunks, decentralizes, and digs in to tailored taboos, sartorial scandals, controversial couture, and other infamous moments in fashion history. I'm your host, Felicia. For the bibliography of today's episode and other suggested readings, check out the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Some of our content may be disturbing or inappropriate for younger audiences, so listener discretion is advised. The scene I just described is from the movie Stormy Weather from 1943. The film was one of the first to feature an entirely black cast. In a time when African-American actors and singers virtually never appeared on movie screens in lead roles. It featured Lena Horne, Katherine Dunham, Bill Robinson, and Fats Waller, to name a few. In the movie, Cab Calloway performs the song Geechee Joe in a nightclub wearing a fabulous example of a zoot suit. While it may look like just a fun stage outfit cooked up by costume designer Helen Rose, the zoot suit is far from just a funky costume made to entertain audiences. And it was definitely not Rose's invention. And I would even venture to say few garments are as truly American as the zoot suit, even as its shockwaves reverberated through Canada and even echoed across the Atlantic. The zoot suit's history is complex and diverse, so in order to do the subject justice, History Unhemmed will be featuring two episodes on it. 
Today's discussion will be focused on the suit's origins, tracing back to the Macintosh and drape suits of the late 1920s and 30s. The next episode, in about two weeks, will be more of a deep dive into the violent conflict associated with the suit, especially the infamous Zoot Suit riots, and the suit's place in the aftermath of World War II. We have a lot to unpack in the next two episodes, so buckle up, buttercup. As much as we like to have short answers for questions that seem simple enough, that's rarely the case. And it's definitely not here. There's no definitive short answer for the origin or invention of the Zoot Suit. It isn't something that can easily be tied to one designer, like a Diane von Furstenberg wrap dress, for example, or Elsa Scaparelli's lobster dress, which we discussed in episode two, or even Dior's new look. Many have claimed to be the inventor of the Zoot Suit, and it's safe to say each player figured into its inception and popularization. Some historians argue that the first Zoot Suit was invented in 1940 by a young black busboy in Gainesville, Georgia, by the name of Clyde Duncan. Upon first glance, the tailor thought that Duncan had sent him the wrong measurements, but Duncan insisted and convinced the tailor to make the suit anyway. Clyde Duncan's suit was made, and Duncan sent pictures of it to Men's Apparel Reporter, where it was published in the February 1941 issue. From there, it was said to have caught on with young black men in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Others contend that the suit was already in existence by 1940. In 1939, Detroit clothier Nathan Toddy Elkus laid claim to the origination of the zoot suit. According to his son Philip Elkus, in an article published in the New York Times, Elkus had taken a, quote, regular suit, marked it with a host of chalk marks, and sent it to Blankston Clothes of New York to have a sample garment made, end quote. Elkus would go back and forth with the head of Blankston Clothing Manufacturing Company, Irving Blank, about the styling details for a while, before the suit finally came back the way Elkus had wanted it. Elkus would call the suit the Thunderbolt suit, but it would later come to be known as the Zoot Suit. According to Philip Elkus, his father's original suit was a, quote, single-breasted model fly front slash pockets with one piece back with peg legs having a 30-inch knee and a 15-inch bottom, end quote. And then we have Harold Hal Fox, a jazz trumpeter from Chicago who also claimed to be the father of the zoot suit. Fox, whose family, like Toddy Elkus's, was Jewish, was the son of a wool wholesaler. He moved from Chicago to New York in the 1930s and joined a band and played with the likes of Billie Holiday and Nat King Cole. It was around this time that he began designing stage costumes for other musicians, from sample bolts of cloth that his father would send him. Rumor has it that Fox got the idea for the zoot suit while living in New York, but he didn't put it into production until he returned to Chicago to go into business with his brother Aaron. Fox sold his first zoot suit in 1939. Fox's clients sound like an inventory list of jazz hits records in a jukebox. Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, Scatman Carruthers, Miles Davis, Sammy Davis Jr., Duke Ellington, and Dizzy Gillespie. And that list goes on. While most sources indicate that the name of the suit came from African-American slang, Fox also takes credit for naming the suit. Hmm. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune, he states, quote, It was cool in those days to talk in rhymes. In those days, the highest compliment you could pay someone or something was to say it was the end to all ends. I needed a word to rhyme with the word suit, so I used the letter of the alphabet that is the end to all ends, Z, and came up with Zoot. Right. Fox even claims he came up with the iconic chain decoration seen in so many old photos hanging off Zoot Suit trousers. 
According to Fox, our clothing store, Fox Brothers, had a commode you flushed by pulling on a chain. One day I flushed the toilet and the chain came off in my hand. I took the chain with me when I went out into the showroom to phone a plumber. He goes on to say, Some cat was getting fitted for a zoot suit and he asked me if I had any accessories to go with the suit. Just on impulse, I hooked one end of the chain to his pants and put the other in his pocket. Bingo. He thought it was terrific. And pretty soon everybody who came in for a zoot suit had to have a chain. Fox Brothers Custom Tailors is still open and in business in Chicago today. The suit's invention has also been attributed to Ernest Skillet Mayhand, who began his career as a comedian performing in a network of nightclubs and venues for African Americans throughout the southern, eastern, and midwestern United States during segregation. This network of venues came to be known as the Chitlin Circuit. Mayhand was said to have invented the look for his 1930s traveling comedy act called Pots, Pans, and Skillet. Ernest Mahan would later go on to play Slick Skillet in the successful television show Sanford and Son. In the early to mid-1930s, before the Thunderbolt or Zoot Suit, there was the Drape Suit and its American cousin, the Macintosh. Both would contribute stylistically to what would become the Zoot Suit. Thus, a discussion of the Zoot Suit's origins would be incomplete without at least touching on some of these fashionable draped menswear ensembles. Frederick Scholte of Savile Row, the Dutch-born personal tailor to Edward VIII, is credited with introducing the drape suit. It was popularized by his favorite client, Edward VIII, also known as the Duke of Windsor. Edward was quite the modern dandy and arbiter of style. He's often credited with the Windsor tie knot, but that is another story for another day. Schulte's drape suit was cut from a heavier suiting wool and featured small high armholes with extra volume through the sleeve head, a natural shoulder line, and a distinctive vertical drape. His design was inspired by British guard uniforms and copied the light V silhouette created by army uniform jackets and possessed more room in the chest of the suit jacket. The trousers and lower half of the jacket clung to the wearer's posterior, highlighting the booty and creating a draped effect. Film had already begun to gain a foothold in the 1910s, and by the 20s and 30s, Hollywood movies had audiences all over the world. That kind of visibility would have an impact on the promotion of certain fashions, something we'll discuss more in episodes to come. Worn by Hollywood dandies like Fred Astaire and Cary Grant, the London drape gained popularity with audiences on both sides of the Atlantic, particularly for the full range of motion which made it a hit in dance halls from Harlem to San Francisco. In the United States, Macintosh Studio Clothes, based in San Francisco and headed by Richard Macintosh, became known for a particular and peculiar cut of suit. The Macintosh suit became a favorite of Hollywood's leading men in the 1920s and 30s. Beloved by many members of pre-Hays Code royalty, including the likes of William Powell and later on Clark Gable, the suit borrowed from its English cousin, but took a more amplified approach. It was usually made of a fine wool and double-breasted. Its enormous shoulder pads, broad lapels, and cinched waist took the V-shaped silhouette of the London drape and blew it up. The Macintosh suit featured wide pants that flowed in deep pleats from a high, narrow waist. The Macintosh suit soon gained a following among young Filipino-American men. In 1898, after the Spanish-American War ended, the Philippines became an American territory or colony. In the early 20th century, particularly through the 20s and 30s, young Filipinos began flocking to the United States, 
for the promise of a brighter future. Most took jobs as cannery and farm laborers, where they were subject to harsh conditions, exploitation, and paid a pittance. We are talking less than 90 cents a day, which was pretty crappy even back then. Unlike Chinese and other Asian immigrants at the time, there were virtually no restrictions on immigration at first due to the U.S.'s colonial relationship with the Philippines. However, that same status prevented them from being able to own homes in cities such as Los Angeles or even gain citizenship. American teachers, in quotes, in the Philippines also encouraged them to come to America, leading them on with empty promises of wealth and opportunities galore. Thousands, mostly men, emigrated, and by 1930, there were more than 30,000 Filipinos in California alone. Forbidden from being able to ascend professionally or in terms of wealth, and denied the right to rent, own property, or even enter certain areas of major cities, Filipino workers spent their money on such things as clothing. The suit makes the man, after all. Wearing the suit, a favorite of the silver screen All-American King, allowed a brief respite, a moment to enjoy what it felt like to be a movie star. These young men watched Hollywood films and were able to mimic white American celebrities, at least in fashion. Macintosh suits became fully embraced in the sartorial system that Filipino-Americans developed in the period from about 1920 to the years leading up to World War II. Their carefully crafted look rejected their working identities as agricultural or cannery workers. Men dressed to impress. To impress the women they courted, to impress their fellow Filipino recruits if they were a labor contractor, for example, and to impress their bosses and to impress each other. Informal banquets held by fraternal organizations and other groups within the expatriate community. They also dressed up for formal, professionally taken photographs that they sent back to their families in the Philippines. They wanted to convey the image of success and typically kept mum about their suffering and about the violence, racism, and exploitation they were subject to in the United States. Many white farmers saw the young Filipinos as a threat, both professionally and sexually. The suits they wore when not in the fields or factories presented part of the perceived problem. When not working, many of the young laborers frequented taxi dance halls, where they could dance with some of the few Filipinas in the area, as well as Mexican and white girls. Of course, this was for a price, usually about 10 cents a dance. And these guys did not come to play. All right? Not even a little bit. Dressed to the nines and sporting swagger for days, they arrived with their hair slicked back, black and white shoes polished to a blinding shine, and of course, garbed in a snazzy Macintosh suit. They often found themselves competing for the attentions of the ladies, and this was a high-stakes game of outdoing one another in dress, deportment, and manners. Any old suit would not do. It had to be the Macintosh suit, or something with a similar style. It's not just the look of the suit that made it so special, but also what the suit represented to these migrant workers. To them, the Macintosh suit was an act of defiance, a means of grasping even a little taste of American luxury. It was a show of taste and success. As a matter of fact, many would even carry cigars while wearing the Macintosh suit for the look. The cigars were an accessory and not to be smoked. Even for those who did not frequent the dance halls, dress was aspirational. There was another group of young Filipinos who abstained from smoking, drinking, dancing, gambling, and eating meat. This group comprised many members of the FFA, the Filipino Federation of America, which was established in 1925. 
They also favored fine suits in their off hours, seeing them as a means of gaining acceptance by the white majority in their new country. The idea of the Macintosh suit was so powerful to these young men that they often equated simply the name Macintosh with the finest suits, to the point where they would use the term Macintosh to refer to all of their suits, even those not actually produced by Macintosh Studios. Their appropriation of Hollywood aesthetics would have fatal consequences. White men were less than pleased with the interracial mingling that went on in these dance halls, especially the dapper and charming Filipinos chatting up and dating white women. The well-dressed Filipino man in a tailor-made suit, who transcended his lowly status of working-class laborer by appearing just as handsome and suave as a white American Hollywood star, paid a heavy price for his sartorial choices. White men represented Filipinos as hypersexualized, posing a threat to white women. They spread rumors that Filipinos were all addicted to gambling and that their frequenting of taxi dance halls made them a, quote, social problem, an enemy of decency. Angry white men did not see a difference between those Filipinos who attended the dance halls and those who did not. While those who participated in FFA deliberately attempted to dismantle the negative stereotypes that plagued Filipino laborers, white society could only see one kind of Filipino man, the, quote, flashy dresser, with designs on white women. Public officials only reinforced these stereotypes, feeding the hatred. The magistrate of the city of Monterey in California declared that Filipinos were, quote, little brown men attired like Solomon in all his glory, strutting like peacocks and endeavoring to attract the eyes of young American and Mexican girls, end quote. San Francisco Municipal Court Judge George Steiger spouted similar vitriol. He said that Filipinos were walking the streets, quote, clad in the extreme loud pearl button suits, wearing spats, light hats, brightly colored ties, following our high school girls around the city and exploiting them, end quote. How dare these Filipinos come in, stepping out of line, appropriating suits worn by white Hollywood leading men? How dare they try to claim a piece of the shiny propagandized image of America spread around the world? Shame on them for presenting themselves as handsome fashionable, successful bachelors while they wander around romancing pure and decent white women. <laughs> Sorry, I can't keep a straight face, but you get the idea. Ultimately, Macintosh suit-wearing Filipinos unsettled the so-called established social order and white American masculinity with their stylish dress, meticulous grooming, elegant manners, and ability to dance. The suits only acted to enhance their wearer's visibility. This was a massive problem to the larger American populace who would have preferred that they remain invisible. They definitely did not do that. Many businesses recognized that Filipino laborers had buying power. Many tailors and even photographers targeted their business towards Filipino clientele. Advertisements for tailors, both white and Filipino, were featured in the FFA's newsletter, The Filipino Nation. One, for Roberts Tailors and Designers, published in 1928, read, quote, don't be fooled. Better dressed Filipino boys go to Roberts. They know style and clothes, end quote. And, quote, the better dressed Filipino boys wear Roberts, end quote. Broadway tailoring claimed to be the, quote, most popular tailor among the Filipinos all over the world for snappy clothes, end quote. Smith and White's Incorporated also emphasized the ties to Hollywood leading men that made the Macintosh the gold standard among young Filipino migrant workers. They advertised saying, quote, Worn and approved by the leaders of the film world, end quote. Many of these businesses also promised courteous treatment to a minority group 
that all too often came face to face with signs that read, No Filipinos Allowed. Photography studios also advertised in the FFA newsletter. These included some studios owned by Japanese Americans, including the Ninomiya studio that claimed to be a, quote, Filipino's favorite photographer, end quote, in Los Angeles. There was Tanaka Photo Studio in Los Angeles, George Studio in Fresno, and Fukuki Studio in Stockton. This only further incensed white America, and tensions erupted into a number of anti-Filipino uprisings. White men took to beating up Filipinos in the street. Riots and street violence began springing up, particularly on the West Coast. The first of these on record took place in Yakima, Washington in 1927. In 1927, in Topanish, Washington, armed mobs organized with the intent to go out and kill Filipinos. In 1930, during the Watsonville riots, hundreds of white men in Watsonville, California, attacked local Filipino workers and their families. They dragged many of them out of their homes, shot some, and threw others off a bridge. In response to the xenophobic sentiments, Maryland Senator Millard Tidings and Alabama Representative John McDuffie drafted the Philippine Independence Act, also known as the Tidings-McDuffie Act. It was intended to set out a plan for Philippine independence and address the so-called Filipino problem. Hmm. In 1934, Franklin Roosevelt signed the act into law. The act also curtailed Filipino immigration to the tune of 50. I said 5-0, mostly male laborers from the Philippines being allowed to immigrate into the United States per year. Though immigration did slow significantly, it never really did get to double digits because agricultural lobbies like the Hawaiian sugar planters were able to successfully petition the federal government for more laborers. As the Tidings-McDuffie Act reclassified Filipinos as aliens for the purpose of immigration and significantly reduced their numbers entering the United States, the Macintosh suit began to lose its luster. But many of its elements were revived in the later part of the decade and into the 1940s with the arrival of the Zoot Suit on the scene. The Zoot Suit, which gained traction from 1940 to 1942, often came in bright colors comprised of a boxy, heavily shoulder-padded knee-length jacket with massive notched lapels, paired with peg-cuffed pants worn way up on the waist. According to Cab Calloway's Hepster Dictionary, that's hepster, not hipster, the word zoot was not just a rhyme like Harold Fox had claimed, but rather something done or worn in an exaggerated style. The long killer-diller coat with draped shape and wide shoulders, Pants with reet pleats billowing out in the knees, tightly tapered and pegged at the ankles. A pork pie or broad-brimmed hat, pointed or thick-soled shoes, and a long dangling keychain. The look was typically accessorized with a tie and white shirt, prominent jewelry, and a large pompadour hairstyle. The zoot suit was popularized by black jazz performers like Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, and Louis Armstrong as well as the aforementioned Cab Calloway, across nightclubs in Harlem and New Orleans. Harlem was the undisputed epicenter of the trend on the East Coast, with nightclubs like the Savoy Ballroom and Sammy's Follies. The roominess of the suit gave performers a full range of motion, allowing them to move freely as they performed this lively music. The tapered ankles of the suits were designed to keep swing-dancing couples from catching on each other's clothing and falling on the floor. Now imagine spinning along mid-jitterbug, and tripping over your dance partner's flowing pant leg. Yeah, definitely not ideal. On December 7, 1941, the United States entered World War II after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And in April of 1942, the zoot suit trend hit a huge hiccup. Fabric was an important commodity, and materials like wool and silk 
were strictly rationed for the war effort. In April of 1942, the WPB, or War Production Board, instituted a series of measures to conserve materials. Long jackets, pleats, cuffs, and ruffles were banned, and the amount of pockets per garment were strictly regulated. Needless to say, the extreme yardage of the zoot suit made it a direct affront to the war effort, and legal production of the suit ceased. Zoot suits were deemed immoral, wasteful, and worse, unpatriotic. Bootleg tailors continued to produce them, though, as demand for them remained, particularly in black and brown communities. Popularized by African Americans on the East Coast, and in places in between, including Chicago and Detroit, the suit spread across the country where it was adopted and adapted by Mexican-American youth on the West Coast. It also became popular among young Jewish, Italian, and Asian, mostly Filipino and Japanese, men. Zoot suits were all custom-made, meaning you couldn't buy them cheaply off the rack. They were made of wool and sometimes silk, had various customized design features, and included things like auxiliary zippers and triple darts to better conform to the wearer's figure. The fact is, the zoot suit itself was not limited to one set cookie-cutter look. Young men wore a range of styles. For example, the semi-drape offered a more subdued look, and an extreme drape was, well, just that. Extreme. The semi-drape had a cuff of around 16 inches, while the more extreme version had a tighter 14-inch bottom cutting a dramatic silhouette. Many of the mad cats, or young men who wore the zoot suit, came from impoverished and marginalized communities. The news and anti-zoot suit media exaggerated the costs of the suit by more than 50% in an effort to dissuade the young men from buying them and to make them appear prohibitively expensive. So, based on their advertisements, a Brooks Brothers suit ran between $55 and $90 during the Second World War. Those would be among the most expensive. A cheaper suit would usually cost someone about $20 to $30. The actual cost of a zoot suit ranged from about $20 to $80. So, it was actually quite broad. And as a result of the cost, many young men who came from the lower-income areas altered their own clothing at home, crafting their suits from old hand-me-downs or from suits bought in larger sizes from affordable menswear retailers. This, in turn, actually made zoot suits rarer and harder to find for contemporary collections. Not helping in that regard, many zoot suits were repurposed into other garments after the trend faded in the 1950s. It took the Los Angeles County Museum of Art almost 10 years to find their zoot suit, and that one ended up going for about $78,000 at auction in 2016, which, by the way, is a record for a piece of 20th century menswear. In 1943, the poet Langston Hughes wrote in an article that the young people who grew up poor in the 1930s found a sense of empowerment and a voice through the display of excess. He wrote, quote, It made them feel good to go to extremes. In the light of the poverty of their past, too much becomes just enough for them. A keychain six times too long is just enough to hold no keys, end quote. Almost immediately, the garment became a means of confronting and combating racism and inequality in America. The exaggerated silhouettes of the suit were rebellious, taking up space figuratively and quite literally in a country that sought to trample and minimize the men wearing the suits at every turn. The suit was a means of negotiating a complicated identity in a country that only valued whiteness. Ralph Ellison mentions in his novel Invisible Man that the zoot suit had a, quote, profound political meaning, end quote, and that it was one of many, quote, myths and symbols which abound among the Negro masses, end quote. He believed that the suit, 
offered clues to the state of black America. Malcolm X purchased one on credit before he moved to Harlem in 1943. He writes about it in his memoirs and describes it as a, quote, killer diller coat with a drape shape, reap pleats, and shoulders like a lunatic's cell, end quote. Killer diller, by the way, was slang to refer to anything that was especially excellent, outstanding, etc. in the 1940s. As scholar Kathy Pice writes, quote, since the mid-1980s, the zoot suit has captivated scholars of American ethnicity and race. African-American historians place zoot suitors within a long-standing tradition of black style and performance, but also consider them in relation to the resurgent civil rights activism in the war years. An even greater number of books, articles, and dissertations have focused on Mexican-American youth culture and civil unrest in wartimes Los Angeles. They say the suits explore gender, family, and community, trace patterns of discriminatory employment, schooling, and policing, and rediscover a nascent political movement, end quote. To refer to the suit as a form of style warfare would be pretty accurate. The zoot suit, like the Macintosh suit before it, became a loaded symbol for the struggle of racial equality in America. Unlike the Macintosh suit, which was worn in an effort to gain acceptance from larger white society, the zoot suit sent a very different message. It was a pretty clear fuck you to conservative white society, and was often linked, not unlike its predecessor, the Macintosh suit, to such behavior as fighting, drinking, and loitering. On the West Coast, many young Mexican-American men called themselves pachucos. Pachucos were instantly recognizable in their zoot suits, bright shirts, and big hair. They listened to jazz and swing music and created their own form of slang, using mostly English mixed with a little Mexican Spanish, which they called calo. For the record, the pachucos were kids who grew up in the United States and spoke mostly English. Quite a few, in fact, didn't speak any Spanish. All the same, in cities like Los Angeles, which had belonged to Mexico before the United States, these individuals were relegated to the status of perpetual foreigner. About one million Mexican immigrants and Americans of Mexican descent were forced to leave the United States, mostly in the Southwest, for Mexico during a period referred to as repatriation. More than half were U.S. citizens. In 1943, as the United States shifted into full war mode, there was a mass influx of laborers from Mexico and other diverse backgrounds flooding into Los Angeles. This only heightened already bad racial tensions in the city. The Pachuco's female counterparts were called Pachucas. Pachucas, also known as Cholitas, Slick Chicks, and Lady Zoot Suiters, often wore similar, heavily shoulder-padded jackets paired with v-neck sweaters and either pleated or slim-fitting knee-length skirts. Some even donned trousers similar to those worn by Pachucos. They added fishnet stockings or bobby socks, horachi sandals, stacked-heeled shoes or saddle shoes, and offset the look with dark lipstick, eyeliner, and a bouffant hairstyle referred to as a razor blade hairdo, as it theoretically presented a perfect hiding place for razor blades. The Pachucos and Pachucas ultimately laid the groundwork for the Chicano movement that would take hold in the 1960s. The origins of the Pachuco subculture emerged along the borders of Mexico and the United States, particularly in El Paso, during the late 19th century and early 20th century. The migration of Mexican-American youths to large cities of the United States during the 1930s and 40s contributed to a significant development of the Pachuco subculture. Because Los Angeles offered plenty of job opportunities, Mexican-American communities grew in the inner city. Los Angeles soon became the site of the largest Pachuco subculture. Mexican youth, particularly Pachucos and Pachucas, were demonized by local authorities, which we will be talking about a lot more in the next episode, don't worry. 
cities like Los Angeles became incubators for the style, and the Zoot Suit became a means by which members of marginalized communities communicated and connected with one another. Pachucos in inner-city Los Angeles shared the style with young Japanese-American men. This group of Nisei, persons of Japanese descent born in North America to Japanese immigrant parents, adopted the Zoot Suit and called themselves Pachuke, a Japanese version of the word Pachuko or Pachuka. They also use the term yagore, a derivation of the Japanese verb yagoru, meaning to get or be dirty. The word yagore was often associated with laziness, drunkenness, excessive gambling, loafing around pool halls, regularly picking fights, and soliciting prostitutes. On February 19, 1942, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066 that resulted in Japanese Americans being removed from their homes and shipped off to internment camps in remote locations. Nisei, who had grown up in cities like Los Angeles, took the style with them to the camps, introducing it to more young Japanese Americans. During the late 1930s and early 40s, the zoot suits also appeared in Filipino communities in big cities like Los Angeles and Stockton. Many Filipinos lived in the same neighborhoods as Black and Mexican Americans, and many young Filipinos traded the Macintosh suit for the zoot suit. It's actually very telling in a sense. The Macintosh suit represents a desire to become part of the culture, but then the zoot suit was an act of open defiance. While the zoot suit gained favor among the rebellious youth, community elders were less than thrilled. Within the Black, Latino, Filipino, and Japanese communities, the look was a sore spot, a point of contention that ultimately facilitated conversations about how to approach and successfully practice civil disobedience, how to go about obtaining equal rights in America. Many parents and community elders saw the suit as outrageous and disrespectful, which was kind of the point, and often forbade their sons from wearing the suit in public spaces. That worked real well. Yeah, no. Like many of us have done with the likes of belly tops and miniskirts, sorry mom, and yes, I know, I just dated myself, quite a few young Zooters snuck out and changed away from home, whether that was at a friend's house or a public restroom. In the Chicago Defender, the first black newspaper in America to have a circulation of over 100,000 readers, one editorial declared that Zoot Suits no more represented black communities than, quote, watermelon, dice, switchblades, or muggings, end quote. The article implored young African Americans not to wear the Zoot Suit. Black editors and civic leaders advised younger community members to, quote, buy war bonds, plant victory gardens, do their utmost to spur war production and serve bravely in the armed forces in order to qualify for equal rights, end quote. Wendell P. Dabney, the publisher of the Cincinnati Union, whose own parents had been slaves in Virginia, wrote to his readers that, quote, as long as we tolerate and condone among ourselves public misconduct, impoliteness, spendthrift habits, slovenliness, uncleanliness, we need never hope to attain the standards that white American citizenship endorses, the rights that the U.S. Constitution accords, end quote. In Cleveland, the Vanguard League, which had led militant protests by African Americans in the 30s, conducted a wartime good conduct campaign, displaying posters and handing out cards to those in black neighborhoods it considered to be guilty of misconduct, proclaiming, quote, watch your conduct on the streets, fix that door, cut that grass, pull out those weeds, end quote, and above all, to avoid wearing, quote, zoot suits, the mark of irresponsibility, end quote. Suffice it to say, the suit was provocative both within and across community lines. The discussions surrounding it would be crucial in the years ahead into the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. 
the Japanese American Citizens League also tried to obscure the perceived indecency of Zoot suitors in their communities, making extra efforts to promote the achievements and bravery of Nisei units fighting on behalf of the United States during World War II, particularly the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. The segregated Japanese-American 442nd Regimental Combat Team was, by the way, the most decorated army unit during World War II and probably in American military history. Their motto was one I'm actually rather fond of myself, go for broke. These narratives ended up becoming the dominant ones, and other ones like the Yugore and the Pachuque were crowded out deliberately because they didn't conform to the image that the JACL thought the community needed to promote in order to be accepted as American. From its inception, the suit represented dissent and breaking from conservative social norms. It was tightly entwined with music, dancing, and acts of nonconformity. Tune in to our next episode for more on the suit's complicated history when we tackle the Zoot Suit riots that rocked Los Angeles in 1943 and the subsequent riots in Canada. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of History Unhemmed. History Unhemmed is hosted, written, and researched by me and produced by Gary Avazov. If you would like to support History Unhemmed, we're on Patreon at patreon.com backslash historyunhemmed and anchor at anchor.fm backslash historyunhemmed. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us on social media and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us a review, but most of all, thank you so much for listening.